It's great to see you guys, and of course, as always, it's, it's hard to interrupt the exchanges amongst you all and, and ruin your time of fellowship, so I'm sorry we're going to have to take a pause on that until after our, our time in God's Word. If you guys don't know me, I am Jonah Welch. I'm the youth pastor here at Redemption Hill, and I got the tap from Pastor Joe. I got called out of the bullpen to come and, and preach this morning to you guys, and of course, it's an honor, it's a privilege, it's, it's humbling for me to do this um, for my church family. Um, really, there's no higher honor in my life than to open up God's Word, um, even as I'm sitting here worshiping with you guys, singing these songs about Christ, giving glory to Him, I'm just reminded of God's continual kindness in my life, and you guys are that. You guys are the gift, and um, I'm just very thankful for you guys. And I'm thankful for Pastor Joe and Shay as well, and all of you who serve faithfully in this church, doing ministry for the Lord. Uh, Pastor Joe, if you guys didn't know, was um, getting a little older yesterday. We get older every day. I don't know why I said that, but literally yesterday, he, uh, he turned 45, and it was his birthday. So if you guys want to shoot him a text, if you guys want to give him a call um, sometime, not right now, you can do it after I'm done preaching. Uh, he would love that. Just to express our, our gratitude and our thankfulness for Joe, he carries a unique burden um, that no one else in this church, even myself and Shay, don't equally share being the lead pastor here at this church. So it's my job and Shay's job and the elders. We want to help carry that burden with Joe, but he is our, our lead pastor. He's our, he's our captain in a lot of ways, um, leading us to Christ. So we just want to thank him uh, for his faithfulness to us week in and week out as he disciples, as he shepherds the flock, as we've been studying in 1 Peter so well. With that said, let's grab our Bibles. Let's do this. I want to invite you guys to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, if not my favorite book. I love how Paul presents in this book, in this letter to the Corinth church, really the, the manual for, for ministry. The description and the prescription for ministry for the church. How we are to do ministry. Why are we to do ministry. How Paul himself would do ministry. And how all of it is inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul in this time is being attacked by false teachers by the culture as it is infiltrating the church. And these false teachers are attacking Paul for being ineloquent, for being weak, for being foolish in the eyes of the world. And if you guys remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul describes how he did not come to the Corinth church with eloquence of words. He did not come like the Greek philosophers who were very popular at the time. He came in humility in weakness. For what he brought, the message he brought was what? It was Christ and him crucified. So much simplicity to this. And it's also a reminder for me that I know I'm not a man of eloquent words. I'm not going to wow anyone today by what I have to say, but what my desire is, is the same of the Apostle Paul's, is to preach Christ and him crucified alone. And to do that with the simplicity of what God's word has to say. And it's this ministry that we are going to speak of today. And we're going to look at really two verses for us. And I want us to start by reading it. Verses 17 and 18. And then we'll begin to dive in together. 
2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Before we divulge and and dissect these two verses a a little bit more, we actually need to go back in our Bibles to the Old Testament a little bit. So I want to actually invite you guys now to go back to Exodus with me. Exodus, we haven't been in the Old Testament much as a church lately, but I want us to go back for the sake of our passage. So Exodus 33 is where I really want us to start. This is our launching pad for us to understand what the Apostle Paul is speaking about, what he's, what he's developing in 2 Corinthians 3. In Exodus 33, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He is there with the Israelites after they've been rescued from the, the hands and the oppression of the Egyptians. And in Exodus 33, verse 17, as Moses is there with the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In verse 18, look what Moses says to the Lord. He says, Lord, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is Moses' desire is to behold God's glory. If you look over in the next chapter, in chapter 34, in verse 5, look at what Moses sees. In verse 5 of chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud. The Lord stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go out in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Whatever this moment was like for Moses, it was transformative in his ministry. We know that Moses had interactions with the Lord. He was a prophet of prophets. He spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. Yet this moment marked a a turning point in Moses' ministry when he actually beheld a glimpse of the glory of God. A moment that later in chapter 34 and 29, as Moses is coming down, 
from the mountain would actually make his face illuminate. The glory that Moses saw in verse 39 had made his skin shine as he was speaking with God. And if you guys look at chapter 34 at the end, verse verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil, a veil that he would put over and would remove. And when he would come out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again. This was the ministry of Moses. He would go, he would speak with the Lord, he would remove a veil, he would witness God's glory, he would go out, the people would see his face, and he would put a veil over his face again. What glory was this that Moses saw that he would have the very nature of his skin changed? You know, I think about a glow stick almost where it's, if you want the glow stick to glow, you gotta, you gotta let it be in the light first. You gotta let it absorb the light and then when you turn off all the lights, then the glow stick will really shine. And the more that Moses would draw close to God, the more he would reflect God's glory. With that said, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3. This is our context here. This is what Paul is actually speaking of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But I want us to see what Paul speaks about this moment and speaks of Moses' ministry like in this third chapter of 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You see what Paul's doing? Paul's contrasting two ministries. He's looking at the ministry of Moses, the ministry of the law, the ministry of the old covenant. And he's comparing that to his ministry, which is the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he he asks this question in verse eight that really is driving this sermon. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory, have much greater glory, have better glory, have exceeding glory, Have glory according to verse 11 that is permanent, that is eternal. Have glory that is according to verse 9 that is a ministry of righteousness, not that of condemnation like Moses. Will not that ministry have more glory than even the Moses ministry that changed the very nature of his face and made it shine? These are pretty bold words from the Apostle Paul, are they not? I think the question that we need to all ask ourselves is how could Paul make such claims? I mean, Paul, come on. Moses literally saw God's glory. He got a glimpse of the curtain pulled back. The veil was removed. The spiritual veil, we say. And he saw God's glory. You're telling me that the glory of the new covenant The glory of the ministry of the Spirit is far greater than even what Moses experienced? Yes, exactly. 
But the reason Paul could say that is found in our two verses for us today. What gives Paul the confidence, the boldness to make such claims? If you guys look at verses 17 and 18, there's a consistent theme here that's found throughout the chapter. And it's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. What marked the difference in ministry between that of Moses and that of Paul was that the Holy Spirit now was inside working in and through the Apostle Paul in a unique, mysterious way that Moses and the Israelites never knew and never experienced. This is the ministry that we want to have. It is a spirit-driven, a gospel-centered, a Christ-glorifying ministry that is brought through the power of the Spirit, that is enabled by His hand. I think it's fair before we even continue to stop and just ask, what is ministry? You may hear that word and may think, oh, it's what pastors do. They are ministers, therefore ministry is what they do. But according to the word of God, this is not the case. If you guys remember in Ephesians chapter 4, the role of the pastor, the prophet, the apostle, the evangelist is to do what? It is to equip the saint for the work of ministry. So as we are doing ministry, we are also equipping you, believer, the church, to continue to do ministry in fact, the word in the New Testament in the Greek is the same word from the same root word where we get deacon. It's the word to serve, service, diakonia. So ministry is in fact service. It is using your gifts for the service and the work of Christ in the church. And certainly that's not limited just to the pastor that is not limited just to the elder or to the missionary, but that is for every single believer who possesses the Holy Spirit inside them. This is ministry. Where does it come from? What, what kind of ministry are to have? Well, what Paul's showing us is we need a ministry of the Spirit. We need a new covenant ministry. We can't have a ministry like that of Moses, one that was a, one of condemnation, one of law, but one of grace, one of life, one of righteousness. But I think the reality is, is that when we think about the ministry of the Spirit, when we think about who the Holy Spirit is as the third person of the Trinity, when we think about what the role of the Holy Spirit is, how the Holy Spirit works, what is the whole point of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I think many of us have either a very shallow understanding of this or even worse, a wrong view. What is normal ministry of the Spirit. Well, I think we need to start by asking, what is it not? A lot of people get this wrong, especially in the hyper-charismatic world. The ministry of the Spirit in the church, the normative ministry of the Spirit, is not this. It is not an emotional feeling. The ministry of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit, is not an experience that you can go into and pop in and out every once in a while. And, and it's not a high production worship service. That's not the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is not a, a friend to just help you get through hard times. The ministry of the Spirit is not 
convulsing uncontrollably and collapsing to the ground. The ministry of the Spirit is not incohesive babbling and misunderstood language. The ministry of the Spirit is not self-help therapy. It's not making you a better version of you. This is not the ministry of the Spirit. And fundamentally, the ministry of the Spirit is not good works. And I say that because I think a lot of us have this idea that sanctification, the ministry of the Spirit, is plainly, fundamentally, it's my good works that I offer. It's my obedience. It's me being good and and submitting to God. But all of these things fundamentally are not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what is the true, normal, God-given ministry of the Spirit? I believe this is what Paul is showing you. I believe this is what the Apostle Paul wants us to see in 2 Corinthians 3. And in these two verses, he would use it to defend his own ministry. And I likewise want to show you, church, that this is what we are committed to. That this is the ministry of the Spirit here at Redemption Hill Bible Church. That is both biblical and it is sound. It is God-glorifying and it is Christ-centered. And this is what we're going to look at together now. So in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, God has revealed for us the true nature of ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. And we're getting, we have two points for us, guys. It's quite simple. Verse 17 and verse 18 each have their own point. The two features of the ministry of the Spirit. Here they are, ready? The first one is this. The first feature is this. The ministry of the Spirit is liberation. Look at verse 17 again. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's quite a simple statement that Paul makes. It's not one that we need to overcomplicate. It's actually an equation that he is setting up. We see that there's the Spirit. We see that the Lord is the Spirit. They they equal one another. They are one. And then where the Spirit of the Lord is, where he resides, where he is present, that equals and equates to freedom, liberty, liberation. That is the opposite, we could say, of to be imprisoned or to be enslaved. And I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, I've never been imprisoned by God's grace in my life. I've never had to go to jail. Um, Maybe there's a couple times in high school where maybe I should have, but thankfully I've never been imprisoned and nor do I ever want to, but I often think about what that would be like. And, you know, I've, I've actually met men who have been in prison. There was a, there was a ministry at my church growing up where we would go and the elders and the pastors and some men in our church would go and we would go to a prison and it was a prison ministry. And we would go and we would preach and we would serve the men there and share Christ with them with the hopes that they would understand that although they were not physically liberated from their imprisonment, they could be spiritually liberated. Because I think we all know it goes without saying that it's one thing to be physically held captive, and it is entirely something else to be spiritually enslaved and dominated by sin. It's one thing to know that you're in a jail cell, and maybe you won't get out in this life, but it's another thing to know that you are 
in bondage eternally under our own sin in the law. But what this promise here in verse 17 is, is this, is that if you have the Spirit, hey, there's freedom. Where the Spirit resides, there is liberty. And if you guys remember 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? This was a promise even going back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus says in John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth through the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So it's clear in scripture that the Holy Spirit enters into the hearts and the lives of the believer. That is his occupancy. That is where he resides. This is the home of the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there is no bondage. There is no enslavement to sin. There is no captivity anymore. And, and I love that Paul uses this in light of what we've just been talking about with Moses in the Old Testament, because he says this, hey, where, where the Spirit is, there's freedom. But Israel, you don't have the Spirit. You don't have freedom. And for any good Jew in that day, that would have triggered a thought, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were delivered. We were rescued. We are free. Look back at the Exodus. Was that not God and his Spirit leading us out of the wilderness? What Paul was making clear is, hey, listen, you don't have the Spirit. The Spirit is not residing in your hearts. Just before this, earlier in chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They don't have the Spirit. Instead, they remain in prison. And this is the, the reality, the description of every single individual who does not know Christ. What a sad reality. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus, if you remember, describes how the truth, the truth is what will set you free. This is the key. This is the answer. The key is the spirit. It is the truth, a.k.a. if we're going to tie this all together, it is the gospel. Verse 17 is, in the most basic sense, the gospel that we have been set free, and the way we have been set free is by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Maybe you're thinking, awesome, let's go. That's great, I love this, I'm fired up about this. But you're wondering, okay, what are we free from? <laughs> It's like, I love being free. I don't know what I was free from or how I'm free, but I love being free. Just sounds good. Well, I want to show you guys this a little bit more. And we're going to have to do that. We have to go back to Romans a little bit. So let's turn back just to the couple books to the left. Romans shows us this so well. We know in Romans 3.23 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that there is nothing that we can do to gain a right standing, a righteousness before God himself. And if you guys look in Romans chapter 7, 
starting in verse 4. Look at what Paul says. This is so helpful in understanding our freedom. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, here's the key, verse six, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What have we been set free from? Well, we've been set free from the demands of the law. We've been set free of trying to save ourselves according to our own merits. We've been saved from the demands of that which Moses held to, which was a ministry of condemnation. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So we've been freed from the demands of that old covenant. But not only that, earlier in chapter six of Romans, we've been free from sin's power. Look at Romans 6, starting in verse 5. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, that is Christ in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is Paul's point. Hey, through Christ, you not only are set free from the ministry of death, that which was of Moses, of the law, of trying to attain perfect righteousness on your own, but not only that, you've been set free from sin's power. Sin's reign over your life. That is to say that if you are not in Christ, if you have not died with Christ, if you have not been raised with Christ, sin has authority over your life. And it reigns over your life like a king. And he reigns in death. But for the believer, this is great news, right? We've been set free from sins. Like that, thirdly, we've been set free from sin's penalty. If you guys look at Romans 8, the first two verses, look at what Paul says. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from sin's penalty, from its guilt, from its shame. And one day when we stand before God, because we are in Christ, because we reside in a union, in a relationship with Christ, when God looks at you, who will he see? He will see his son. We've been set free from sin's penalty. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, we will be set free from sin's presence one day when we are one day glorified with Christ. All of this, all of this church just shows you, shows us that the Spirit has set us free. And this is a really good thing, is it not? Kevin DeYoung has a great quote. I think we're going to put it on the screen. He says this, sanctification is a gift just as justification is. Both are a gift of God, ours by, by virtue of union with Christ. That's the key here. Both are found in Christ alone. Both are necessary for salvation. Justification being the root and sanctification being the fruit. 
As is often said, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. So we must never separate justification and sanctification. The former can't help but produce the latter, and the latter must flow from the former. And yet we should not be afraid to talk about justification in a different way than we talk about sanctification. One calls us to rest and the other to fight. One reckons us righteous, the other makes us righteous. One allows for no increase or degrees, the other expects progress and growth. One is a declaration of God about us and the other a work of God in us. And this is the whole point of what we're seeing here in verses 17 and 18 is that 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17 is our, our justification. It is our salvation. And it is also a promise, believer, that if there is sin in your life, remember you are not enslaved to that sin. Because in Christ you have the spirit within you. That is to say, you can say no to your sin. You can actually turn from your sin. You don't have to say yes. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, he says, live as people who are free. This same thing, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So to make this very clear, what is freedom? It is Freedom not to sin, but freedom from sin. Maybe you've heard that before. This freedom does not warrant us the ability to then go and say, great, I can live however I want. May I just sin and indulge my life in the lust and the passions that I have naturally in my life. That's not freedom. That is bondage to the fullest degree. Freedom is this. I see my sin. I see that in Christ, I no longer have to submit to the yoke of slavery that once held me captive. Maybe you can recall in your life certain sin that God has freed you from. You no longer struggle like you once did. Your spiritual appetites have changed. You no longer love sin like you once did. And this is not to say that we never struggle with sin. Church, you know this. We all know this. This is an inevitable part of our humanity. And Satan loves to discourage us in our faith by accusing us of our sin. But believer, remember that you are free. And you are free not because you've done enough good things. You are free because where the spirit is, there is freedom. That is the ministry of the spirit. He's in the work of setting people free from sin. And I'm thankful for that. And when you experience the Spirit's work in your life like this, let it reassure you that the gospel actually works. Let it cause you to be bold. This is the first feature of the ministry of the Spirit. But the second one, and it kind of ties to the Kevin DeYoung quote about justification leading with sanctification and, and the gospel and the, and the life that follows. And this is our second point. The ministry of the Spirit not only is liberation, but the second point is this, the ministry of the Spirit is transformation. Transformation. If you guys look in verse 18, right in the middle of the verse is kind of the, the main, main action, the main verb, and it's 
are being transformed. I don't know if you guys can see that, are being transformed. That's kind of the main, main word, that the main clause, that everything else is, is kind of being clipped to and being built around and structured around. And this idea of being transformed is the word metamorpho in the Greek, which is obviously where we get the understanding for the word metamorphosis. It is a change of nature, a change of, of state, like a caterpillar cocooning and turning into a, a beautiful butterfly. This is what happens, what Paul is saying, like a believer in their life after they've been set free and they are continually being set free from sin through the Spirit's work is that they are being transformed. You know, even just this week, I was, I was looking through some old pictures on my phone and, and going back into the archives and looking at them with my wife and we were just enjoying looking at, you know, little kid pictures of both of us as toddlers and then the awkward stage of, you know, that like sixth to seventh grade, just terrible. Like you just wanted to delete every picture of that stage of life, you know, coming through junior high, high school, college, just seeing all of those memories and just how God worked through all that. But what was so fascinating is if you just put pictures in order year after year after year, you see that change. You see that, that growth happen. You know, I look at myself and I'm just like, what was I doing? Like, why did I think that that hairstyle was cool back then? You know, like, why? Did, why? Just that's all I ask in the old pictures. Why? Why, Jonah? You know, but just seeing that change, that what we would say metamorphosis, that, that change of nature as you grow and grow up into a, a woman, into a man. It's amazing. And I believe it is a physical picture that we can look to and see a spiritual reality of, for those in Christ, you are being transformed. This word transformed is the same word used in Mark 9, verse 2, describing Jesus being transfigured. It's the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Yeah, the difference here in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that the Greek word is not an imperative. I don't know if you guys noticed that. It is not, hey, transform yourselves. It is passive. It is a present active passive verb in the Greek. That is to say that we are the recipients of this transformation. It's like if, if Pastor Joe was on one end of the sanctuary and he was just throwing a football to me and I'm the wide receiver and I catch it, I'm receiving this work. He is the one that is acting. I'm the one that is receiving. And for the believer, this transformation, we often call sanctification. The process by which we become more and more godly, more and more holy each and every day. But what Paul says here is that, listen, hey, this transformation is the ministry of the Spirit, just by way of reminder, by which the believer is being transformed. It's not something that he does to himself. It's something that he receives. But it's also something that is continual. It's something that takes time. It's something that takes a process. And there's two elements here of this transformation process that Paul, Paul wants to make clear. And the first one is this, that the transformation is, it is glory focused. If you guys see in verse 18, he says this, and we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord. This transformation is glory-focused. In fact, beholding the glory of God, the idea of gazing, fixing your eyes in a continual manner is only possible when what? When the veil is removed. And we know that that's only possible when one turns to the Lord. Earlier in chapter 3, he makes this clear in verse 14. In verse 16. Of course, this is the Old Testament connection that Paul is addressing back with Moses. Moses would put a veil over his face, a physical veil, but there is also a spiritual veil that blinds the unbeliever from seeing the glory of God. But when it's removed, when the believer has that veil removed, when you behold God, when you see his glory, something dramatic happens. Something supernatural happens. And it's not like what Moses experienced. It's not that your face is going to start to shine. It's not that you're going to start glowing everywhere you go and your face is going to illuminate. Rather, what Paul is saying is this, is that as we are beholding the glory of God, what happens? We are being transformed. We are being changed from the inside out. The Greek is fascinating. The NASB actually captures this a little bit better. The idea of beholding is actually better understood as beholding as in a mirror. It's as if that you were looking in a mirror. And, you know, even today, as I went into my, my bathroom, I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, I can't go up and preach like this right now. I got to get ready. I got to, you know, take a shower. I got to brush my teeth. I got to do my hair. You got to do the things that usually guys don't take as much time to do as the girls, but it's necessary, right? But every morning this is what we do, right? We, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we evaluate what needs to get done. And Paul says, when we behold God's glory like that, when we see God in his love, when we see God's grace, when we see God's holiness, when we see God's wrath, when we see his justice, when we see his, his righteous anger, when we see all that God is, when we see all that he does, all that he's doing, all that God will do found in the pages of your Bible, when you come face to face as in a mirror with that reality, what it will do is it will transform your life. There's nothing you can do to, to resist that type of glory when you see it. Certainly we can open up the Bible and we can let our, our eyes just glaze over the pages, right? And we can just fill our mind with, with meaningless truth and, and, and things that just don't really matter. And, and we just, that's how we think about it, right? We can just read and be like, all right, great. And then move on and forget it for the rest of the day. No, no, we need to be like Paul in Ephesians 1 who says that we need to have the eyes of our heart opened. We need to have our hearts enlightened to see and to know the glory and the vast measure of Christ. We want to have that type of approach to Scripture. To not only see, but to know, to have hearts transformed by such amazing glory that is even greater than that of Moses. This is what the Spirit does, is he utilizes this, the glory of God to transform lives in a real way. 
this transformation, it is, it is glory focused. But not only that, if you guys see right after this, he says that we are being transformed, how? Into the same image. Okay, whoa. This just took it another step further, right? So that image that we're beholding, right? You know, we've got, we've got this mirror. We're seeing that image. We're seeing it projected. We're seeing God's glory on display. And as we're doing that, the spirit is now working, molding us, transforming us, working in us to then cause us to become like that very image that we are seeing in that reflection. But we can't miss this. What is Paul saying? We'll look down in chapter four. This is the key. This is the key. Chapter four. In verse four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And who is Christ? Who is the image of God? That very image that we are seeing, believers, is Christ. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. The word who became flesh, who is the glory of God manifested. The image of the invisible God. This is Christ. This is what we have been predestined for, according to Romans 8, that we would be what? We would be conformed to the image of Christ. All of it is for this moment right here is that the ministry of the Spirit is Christ-centered. It is, it is directed in and through Christ. That is to say that we are sanctified by the blood of Christ, but we are also sanctified into Christ's likeness. Into the same image. It's such a powerful phrase that Paul uses. Because when we think of image, we are reminded of creation, reminded of how man was once created in the image of God and how in Adam, we were all made in that image and we still are made in that image. But because of Genesis 3, when the sin that came through Adam entered into the world, what happened to that perfect image of man? That image was shattered. And only through Christ can that image be fully restored. So as we look to Christ, church, not only are we becoming more like Christ, but what is happening is, is we are restoring that which was once lost at the fall. This is the ministry of the Spirit. This is true ministry of the Spirit. And I think all of this is so clear when we understand Jesus' words in John 16, verses 13 and 14. If you guys have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at this. John 16, verse 13 and 14. Jesus speaks of the Spirit. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare the thing to you, the things that are to come. And look at verse 14. This is the key. What is the ministry of the Spirit right here? The Spirit, verse 14, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it 
to you. Church, what is the ministry of the Spirit? The ministry of the Spirit is to exalt the Son. Is the Spirit not going to take every opportunity, every advantage to then lift up the Son in every way possible, in the pages of Scripture, in the way we worship, in the way we pray, in the way that we preach, all of it, Jesus says the word, all of it is about me. All of it points to me. And through those men who wrote the scriptures, who was inspiring them, the Holy Spirit, all of it is in a way to present Christ in his fullest glory, to show how Christ is everything that God is to be. This is where the work of the ministry of the Spirit all culminates. The Spirit sets you free. How? In Christ. The Spirit has opened your eyes to see the glory of God in the person of Christ. We now see Christ and we see our wretchedness before him. We see his grace. We see his love. We see how holy he is and we can't help but fall on our face before him and say, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Cleanse me with the blood of your covenant. Wash me with the fountain of your mercy. For it is in these moments when we see Christ that we see everything that we ought to be that we are not. For it is in these moments when we see Christ driven by the Spirit that we see everything that we are not but we desire to be. It is in these moments day after day as you open the word and you witness and you behold the glory of Christ that you lead yourself to repent of sin. That you turn from the old ways that you once walked in and you turn and put on Christ daily to run the race with endurance, to even suffer for the sake of Christ. Because if it means we can share more of Christ and more of his glory in this life, nothing else is worth comparing to. And now we can say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 that we know that it is worth suffering the loss of all things that we may know Christ, be like him, and share in his resurrection. That is the ministry of the Spirit. That is the Spirit's work in your life. Horatius Bonar says this, the secret of a believer's holy walk is his continual recurrence of the blood of the surety. In his daily communion with the crucified and risen Lord, all divine life and all precious fruits of it, pardon, peace, and holiness spring from the cross. All fancied sanctification, which does not arise, from, arise wholly from the blood of the cross, is nothing better than Pharisaism. If we would not be holy, we must, not, we must get to the cross and dwell there. Else, notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, praying, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute for those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. This is what we are committed to. We seek to present Christ because that's the ministry of the Spirit. That's why Paul says that I came and I preached Christ and him crucified because he understands that the ministry of the Spirit is to give all glory and attention to the Son. And if we ever fail to do this, we have failed you. 
And worse yet, we have failed Christ, our King. Paul ends this right after this. He says that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Just a reminder that this is not an overnight process. This is a continual transformation that takes place day after day, week after week, month after month, the rest of our life. And all of this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So humbling, isn't it? But at the same time, it's also so motivating. So motivating. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The one who frees you also sanctifies you. So believer, in response to this, church, there's a couple takeaways that we could have, but I think very plainly, we need to be reminded to look to Christ. To say like Moses, God, show me your glory. Show me Christ. Because your spiritual growth is directly connected to how well you are seeing that glory unfolded before you. And the way that we see that is how? It's through the word. It's through the pages of scripture. Paul said just earlier to this that whenever the old covenant is read, whenever it is read, the same veil remains unlifted. That is to say, when we read the pages of Scripture, the veil is removed, we see Christ in his glory, and it changes us. So the more you know Christ, the more it's going to affect your life. But how do we respond? Well, there's many other ones, but I think the most clear one is in verse verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4, look at what Paul says. Therefore, having this ministry by the Spirit of God, the ministry of the Spirit, what do we do now? We... Do not lose heart. Believer, be bold. Redemption Hill, be bold because this ministry that we bring is not one of man. It's not one of the culture. It is one that is of God, commissioned by his spirit in Christ Jesus, and it is one that not only saves lives, but transforms them for ministry. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've been so kind to us. You've been so good to us, and certainly I'm reminded of that in these two verses right here. Lord, we we seek to see Christ. We seek to know you more. We want to behold the glory of God. Not even like how Moses did, Lord, but we want to see your glory in the, in the, the person of Christ the one who captures all of your divine attributes, the one who has presented to us such love and grace and kindness, the one who is holy, the one who is righteous, the one who we can look to for our freedom, our salvation, and a sanctified life, Lord. I pray that this would not enforce in us a a passivity in our sanctification, Lord, but rather fundamentally we would know okay this is what sanctification is now let us run let us pursue obedience to you let this transformation that which you are working in us only spur a greater desire to be more like you knowing that it is your work in us god so father may you be receive all the glory may you receive all the honor and we pray this in your son's name amen